Let's go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to spend some time today. If you do not have a Bible, but you would like to follow along with us, you can uh, grab a Bible that should be in one of the chair racks in front of you. And if you are not familiar with where to find things in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 10 and the verses that we're going to be looking at are on page 1007, 1007 in the uh, Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you. It probably feels like ancient history now, but we actually just finished Christmas. It probably feels to a lot of us like that was about a year ago, but it was just a month ago that we celebrated Christmas together. And most of us have been around kids at some point or another where they are opening up their Christmas presents. And maybe that maybe you have small children that were opening presents this Christmas, so this is fresh in your memory. Or maybe you've just been around kids that when they've been opening, or maybe you were a kid and you can remember opening up Christmas presents. But if you've ever been around small children as they're opening these up, you've seen their excitement as they start to tear the wrapping paper off and they start to see the picture that's on the box that's been wrapped up. And when they enthusiastically rip the box open and spill all the contents of that box out on the floor, the contents that come out of that box do not match the picture. At least not yet. When they enthusiastically rip that box open and turn it upside down, there's some some big pieces that fall out. And then there are a whole bunch of bags often that fall out. And those bags have about 6,745 small parts that are part of this toy. And then... The stickers and the decals come out. And then the last thing to come out of that box is some paper that has yet another picture of what is on the front of that box. But that picture has three words underneath it. Those three words are some assembly required. Some assembly required. The contents of that box are not going to be the ultimate product of what that is intended to be as individual pieces, are they? They are not going to produce joy in that child that is excitedly looking at it. They're not going to produce the kind of experience that you see the children on the front of that box having until the pieces of that box are put together. Now, like that box, the Bible presents a vision or a picture of the Christian life. And the Christian life, as the Bible presents it, not some of, our, not some of the perspectives that we, we have of it, but as the Bible presents it, is a beautiful thing. It's an exciting thing. And particularly the the vision for the Christian community that the Bible has. The Bible has a vision for Christians in which we are embedded in deep 
relationships with each other. And isn't that one of the things that we long for most? Isn't that one of the things that we might be especially aware of as a society in which we have never been more connected to people in our community or, and around the world? We have never been more aware of things that are going on around us and never had more opportunities to connect with more people, and yet we still feel alone. So the Bible presents this vision of the Christian life as one of deep community, and that deep community, that deep relationship with each other has so many benefits. There are, there are a multitude of one another statements throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament, to talk about the ministry that we can have towards one another as Christians. So the Bible is presenting this this vision on the front of the box of the Christian life. But like the box that I talked about on Christmas morning, there is some assembly required. That vision of the Christian life is not going to be realized unless the individual parts, you, me, unless the individual parts gather unless the individual parts assemble. And in fact, then it should come as no surprise to us that the Greek word for church, the the English word church in your Bible is the Greek word, many of you have probably heard this before, ekklesia. And ekklesia means assembly. It means assembly. And so this morning, I want to preach to you on the importance of Not only the assembly, but of assembling. The importance of gathering together as the church. And you might say, well, that doesn't seem necessary since I'm here. But I want you to to be reminded of why you're here. We can get into the habit, and hopefully we do, get into a groove of where gathering together as God's people for worship is one of the non-negotiables of our lives. The question that we're asking on Saturday night is not if we are going to church tomorrow, but we certainly are going to gather as the church tomorrow. And so obviously, if you're here, this has some measure of importance to you, but I want to remind you again of why it matters, why it's important that you're here. And to do that, we're going to be looking at a couple of verses in the book of Hebrews. So if you're there with me in Hebrews chapter 10, I'd like to invite you to direct your attention to verses 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25. We're going to read these verses together. The word of the Lord says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can see from the tables that are set before you both in the balcony and here at the the front of our auditorium that we are going to be celebrating communion together at the end of the service. We are going to be sharing the Lord's Supper together. And so as we 
think about this topic, I want to think about it in light of what we're going to be doing together at the end of the service. And I would like us to consider this truth from Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. The family of Christ is commanded to gather. The family of Christ is commanded to gather. The way our text puts it is, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I believe in this passage of Scripture, there are three reasons why it is essential for us to gather together, why we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together The second two of those are rooted in the verses that we read together, and the first one is connected to the context. And so I'd like for just a few minutes to share with you these three reasons why the family of Christ is commanded to gather. Reason number one, we are commanded to gather because of our confidence in the work of Christ. We are commanded to gather because of our confidence in the work of Christ. Let's talk a little bit about the context in which these two verses appeared, because when we read those verses together, you probably noticed that it seemed like there were some thoughts preceding the thoughts that we read together. And so we want to think about those uh, a little bit. This command to consider... How to stir one another up to love and good works in the context of gathering is based on something that Jesus has done for us. It's based on something that Jesus has done for you. If you are there still in Hebrews chapter 10, just skip back to verse 19 with me, if you will. Because this is where this this whole train of thought begins. Here the author of Hebrews says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, of course, and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so what what he's doing is setting the table for us by saying, Since this, and since this, there are three things that we ought to do. There are three let us's. Not let us, but let us. Let us do this, let us do this, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, if you don't have a lot of familiarity with the Old Testament, or you haven't been in church much, then there's some kind of foreign things that I've just read in verses 19 uh, to 21 that don't make a lot of sense, but let me just see if I can summarize it for you briefly. These verses that we just read together highlight Jesus' work as both a perfect sacrifice and a perfect priest. They're highlighting Jesus' work as a perfect sacrifice and a perfect priest. And this, these verses are rich with Old Testament imagery. The original readers of this would have had their minds immediately drawn back to the the sacrificial system of the old covenant and the imagery of the temple and the fact that there were within the temple 
places that were increasingly restricted from access. We have the, you have the outer court of the temple. You have various divisions within these outer courts of the temple. But then you had a place called, you had a, a place in the temple called the holy place in which just a few of the priests were able to enter. And then there was another area that was even more restricted, a place where the Ark of the Covenant was rested. And this was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, God is omnipresent, right? God is everywhere present. There is nowhere in the universe that God is not. And yet, the Bible shows us repeatedly throughout the scriptures that there is a place where God chooses to especially manifest his presence. It is the place where God, in essence, dwells. And if you were to find one location where God's presence uh, was, was, was most manifest, it would be that most holy place. And the thing about the most holy place is that it was restricted from access by all but one person, the high priest, and that person was only able to enter into the uh, most holy place one time a year. And what that was showing the people was the utter holiness of God. And so the priest would make intercession for the sins of the people. The, the priest, when it was his turn to walk into the holy place, the most holy place that one time a year, he could not just waltz into there uh, like it was, was nothing. It was a serious thing for him to enter into the presence of God. He entered into the presence of God through the sacrifice of blood. And that area was, was veiled off from any prying eyes. And here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus Christ is the greater, the greatest sacrifice. And that sacrifice of Jesus where he offers himself on the cross is the blood sacrifice that enables everyone to enter into the very presence of God. It's an incredible thought to think about, that the work of Jesus on the behalf of those who have put their faith in him enables them to go behind the veil, as it were, into the very presence of God. And so if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have unrestricted access to the presence of God through the sacrifice, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He gave his life so that you could come into the presence of God. All right, he's the perfect sacrifice. But I also mentioned that he is the perfect priest because verse 21 says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so it's referring to the fact that, that Jesus puts an end to the need for this specialized priesthood of those who would go between God and humanity. In the New Testament, we now see the Bible says all Christians are, in essence, a kingdom of priests. Jesus being our great high priest and perfect priest, ending the need for any other human intermediary that would take us to God. And because Jesus Christ has done this on our behalf, 
there are those three let us's. Look at, look at verse uh, 22. Okay, since we've got confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, do you see what what the work of Christ on our behalf is supposed to do? It's supposed to engender confidence. You see, we are often ones to shrink back from moving towards the presence of God, moving towards the presence of Christ, because we have an awareness of our own sinfulness, or at least we ought to. You know the thoughts and intents of your heart. You know your sins. You know your failures and your transgressions. And when we have an awareness of those things, the thing that it, that it often causes us to do is rather than run to God in full confidence, we actually run the opposite direction. And we hope that in running the opposite direction and hope that we can try to reboot ourselves, do better, and when we appear before God, present a better version of ourselves. And the Bible says that is a, 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 a gospel-less way of thinking. When you are at your most sinful is when you most need to draw near. Because it is then that you need to most embrace the work of Christ and believe that you can draw near in spite of everything that you are with full assurance of faith, not because you've had a good day or a good week of obeying or because you've checked off everything in your Bible reading plan, but because you have a great high priest who takes you into the very presence of God and who covers your sins with his blood. So the second let us tells us to to hold fast. That's the kind of thing you don't want to let go of. If you've got a savior like that, you need to hold on tight to him, to trust in him. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because you know that he is faithful to keep all of his promises. Okay, so we're talking about confidence in the work of Christ, right? We're talking about confidence in the work of Christ. But when when the Bible talks about the priesthood of God, it says that Jesus is a great priest over the house of God. See, we've been talking in personal terms, haven't we? We've been talking about the fact that you personally... When you have failed, when you've sinned, when I personally, when I've failed and I've sinned, I need to remember the work of Christ on my behalf and I need to draw near with full assurance of faith. And we often talk about our relationship with Jesus as our own personal Savior, right? And we talk about receiving Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior. And we talk about the need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All of those things are true, right? Jesus needs to be your personal Savior, and He is inviting you into a personal relationship with Him. 
But if that word personal becomes too big, it becomes individualistic. And we forget that Jesus has not just saved us as persons, but that he has putting us together into community. And that's what is being hinted at in our text when it says that we have a great high priest over the house of God. What exactly is the house of God? Well, the question is not what is the house of God, it's who is the house of God. The house of God is the family of Jesus. Earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 3 and verse 6, we won't get into the context of everything that's that's been going on there, but there's a contrast between Moses and Christ going on in Hebrews chapter 3. And in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, the Bible says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. We, you all, together are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So while it is right and good to think about Christ's work in personal terms, Jesus is not just saving us as individuals. Jesus is building a family. And if Jesus is building a family, it should come as no surprise to us that one of the implications of the fact that Jesus is a great high priest over the house of God and is that he's building a building a a house for a a place where he's going to dwell us as a temple, then we are not to neglect meeting together. Or I could put it this way. A person has not come to truly understand and appreciate the work of Christ if they do not understand and appreciate their place in the family of Christ. Or, to put it yet another way, one cannot fully embrace the work of Christ without also confidently embracing their place in Christ's family. Which is why we are saying that we should not forsake assembling together, that we are not just called but commanded to to gather because we believe that Christ is not just doing something for us as individuals, but his intent is to build a family. And if we have missed the family aspect of Christ's work, then we have missed a huge piece of it. There's a second reason we're commanded to gather. We are commanded to gather, first of all, because of our confidence in the work of Christ, but in the second place, because of our commitment to follow the way of Christ. Our commitment to follow the way of Christ. Verse 24 Remind you again, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We've just been through a series through the book of Titus. And the series of that, the, the title of that series was The Good Life. And it is a life of good works fueled by the grace and the goodness of God that we see in the gospel. So there, is, there must be among us a commitment to follow the way of Christ and to encourage one another in that, to encourage each other in the love of Christ and to pursue the good works that, that God has laid out for us to walk in. Which means something that we don't often think about, but it means that there is a sense in which you and I are responsible to some degree for the vibrancy of each other's Christian walk. Again, we tend to think only in individualistic terms. I grow in love in the pursuit of good works as I do all sorts of things like we talked about in Titus. But the reality is, you and I have to have a sense of ownership for each other's spiritual well-being, the vibrancy of our Christian lives. Now, the words that the Bible uses here are interesting. The Bible says we are to stir up one another. And the Greek word that's there that's translated as stir up one another is a word that immediately would have captured the attention of those who were hearing it or reading it. And the reason it would have done that is because some of the connotations of that word. This word is only used one other time in the rest of the New Testament. But I'm going to have it up on the screen for you so that you can see it. It's used in Acts chapter 15 and verse 39. And in Acts chapter 15 and verse 39 it says, And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Now, what's going on in this passage is a disagreement in how to carry out the mission and who is going to go with who, and, and that disagreement is so sharp that they actually create two mission teams that go two different places, and that word that's translated in our text as stir one another up is the word sharp disagreement here. You might capture the flavor of this word with the, with the word provoke. That's a word that, that has connotations that can go either way, right? One of the things that we would say to our children when they were small, when they were small was stop provoking each other, okay? You don't need to keep poking each other in the back seat. Okay, that's one kind of provocation. But there's another kind of provocation when someone provokes you to think more deeply about something or to consider another option. So the, the, the connotations can be either positive or negative. But here we are talking about the idea of provoking and we are to assemble for the pro purpose of provoking or stirring up or spurring each other on to love and good works. And this is something that the Bible says is supposed to be something we are intentionally thoughtful about. 
helps us consider how to do this. So if you get, uh, if you get convicted of murder, that took a turn, didn't it? Hopefully you won't and haven't been and aren't planning on it. But if you're convicted of murder, there are all sorts of, there are all sorts of, of first degree and second degree and an accessory to, and there, there's all sorts of gradations between that. And, and one of those is, uh, refers to the intent behind it. There's a, there's a kind of conviction, conviction to murder that's called premeditated. And premeditated, as you all know, means that it was not a crime of passion. It wasn't something where you, you, you lost your, your mind for a minute and you went crazy and you took somebody's life. No, it was something that you, you considered, you thought about how you were going to pull it off, you, tra- you crafted an alibi, you did everything to try to get away with it. It was premeditated. And this is the idea that the Bible is getting at for us here. It's talking about, when it says, let us consider, it's talking about the idea of being premeditated. You and I, as we gather, should, get, should have enough evidence against us to be convicted of premeditated acts of encouragement. But that's a mindset, isn't it? And how many times are we not in that mindset when we gather? I mean, how often are we in no mindset whatsoever when we gather? As God's people, often we do not gather with intentionality. There is no prayer, oftentimes, shaping the way that we gather. There is little thought given to the people that we are going to encounter when we gather. We are distracted by so many other things. We are distracted by how late we stayed up the night before. We are distracted by how much of a rush it was to actually get here with clothes on and hair somewhat combed. We're thinking about whether people will notice that we're wearing new shoes. We're hoping we don't sing the songs that I don't like and do sing the songs that I do like. Hopefully the sermon won't be boring for once. Hopefully I won't run into this person that I don't like. Hopefully they'll have come in before me and will be sitting on the other side so I won't have to say hi to them. I mean, there are a whole host of things that we're thinking about that aren't the right things to think about. What the Bible is talking about here is considering being premeditated on how we might enter into the gathered worship of the church with an eye towards premeditated encouragement. That there are people here who need to remember that they're loved because they're not hearing it anywhere else. And I'm going to shout out my brother here in the front row 
don't worry, I won't dorm- normally do this to you if you have a conversation with me before church. I'm not going to highlight you, but I know Mike will be okay with it. <laughs> this morning, I was walking into my office to gather some stuff together before I walked over here. And Mike reached out to shake my hand, and I was prepared for our normal quick handshake, how are you, fine, how are you, fine, good, now I'm going to get my stuff. But he looked at me in the eye, and when I reached for his hand, he held my hand as we shook it, and he said, has anyone told you that they loved you today? was not expecting that. And I thank God that he gave me a real illustration for this sermon that happened today that wasn't me, but it was just a godly man in our church. What if we all did that? What if we had a shift in our mentality where where we came together as a church and we wanted to make sure that every single person we encountered knew how loved they were? Because you know there's people in our assembly who don't ever hear it. And each one of us prone to doubt God's love for us. Because we continually tie the experience of God's love to our obedience. And as I've said before, and I'll say again, one of the ways that God shows love to his people is through his people. God wants people who gather here to experience his love through his people. Now, you say, love that Mike did that, not comfortable with that yet. Okay, that's when you get your PhD in it. Maybe you want to start in elementary school. Well, I've got an elementary school start for you. What if you started with intercessory prayer? What's intercessory prayer? It's interceding on behalf of others. We we pray on others' behalf all the time, right? That's intercessory prayer. So let me read uh, a suggestion to you from someone by the name of Richard Foster who gives this suggestion about how we gather together and that the role prayer could play. He says, when people begin to enter the room, talking about the auditorium at church, when people begin to enter the room, glance around until you see someone who needs your intercessory work. Perhaps their shoulders are drooped or they seem a bit sad. Lift them into the glorious, refreshing light of his presence. See, I think he's meaning imagine the burden tumbling from their shoulders as it did from Pilgrim's and Bunyan's allegory. 
hold them as a special intention throughout the service. If only a few in any given congregation will do this, it will deepen the worship experience for all. Think about what he's saying there. Gather and be looking at other people and read their body language. And you may be able to tell, you may not be able to tell, but what if you just chose someone in the room and you made it your goal to intercede on their behalf before Christ the entirety of the service. Lord, help them know this. Lord, help them believe this. Lord, help them feel this. You think that might change the way you worship? Yes, we are here as individuals to hear God's word and to worship the Lord but you are not here for a personal worship experience. We are here because our family needs our encouragement to keep loving like Jesus, to keep living like Jesus, and to keep receiving the love of Jesus. So the third reason we need to gather together, we're commanded to gather together. That third reason is because of the coming day of Christ. Because of the coming day of Christ. The Bible says in verse 25, we are to encourage one another and all the more as the day draws near. As the day draws near. When you talk about the day, that probably indicates that it's some kind of special day. And that's in fact exactly what it is. It is a special day It is a day when Jesus comes back for his family. Jesus told his disciples that they would see him returning in the the same way that he had departed. He is coming back for his own. And that day is going to be a day of great blessing, but it is also going to be a day of judgment. And the book of Hebrews speaks about it in both of those ways, that this coming day of Christ is a day of both blessing, and judgment. And so the author of Hebrews encourages us to hold on and to hold fast and to not abandon our faith in him. This is an idea that's already shown up earlier in Hebrews. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, the author of Hebrews says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I always say when I read passages like this of Scripture that there are those among us in our congregation who have weak consciences. And when you hear that, it immediately strikes fear into your heart. So let me assure you that, that we understand the Bible's teaching that that we do not keep ourselves in the love of Christ. We do not, we do not hold, our, 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 the strength of our salvation is not in the strength of our ability to hold on to Christ. Rather, it is on Christ's ability to hold, our, hold on to us. And in fact, we see in the Gospel of John, Jesus saying things like, no one can take them from my hand. So, so Christians are eternally secure in Christ. But the author of Hebrews, when he, 
when, when the warnings are, are issued is, is warning people not to turn away from their faith in, their trust in, their hope in the work of Christ, not because they could possibly lose their salvation, but because that turning away from faith in Christ could be an indication that they never truly possessed it. So it says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We often talk about church membership here with this phrase, helping each other make it home. And we talk about it that way because we believe that it's important to link arms with a bunch of other people where you're healthy so that when you fall, you're not alone. When your feet give out, you've got people that are holding you at the arms. And we have example after example from our own experiences of people who have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They start going down a path that takes them further and further away from Christ And we warn, and we beg, and we plead, but they stop being able to see it because their vision is clouded by sin which is lying to them. And so, we gather together with other Christians we link arms with other Christians so that we are not, are not alone when we fall. And friends, this is not a luxury. It is a necessity. And Hebrews says we're to encourage one another with a sense of urgency. It says, and so much the more as the day draws near clock is running out. The day is fast approaching. We feel weak sometimes in our our Christian life and in our pursuit of Christ, and we feel like we can't keep going, and so we need the community of saints around us to say, hold on just a little bit longer. We're going to get there. More importantly, Jesus is going to get us. Hold on. Don't throw away the hope of your faith. Don't throw away the truth of the gospel. Don't follow that sin that's promising you joy for a season. Stay close to Jesus. And we encourage each other with it again and again and again as we see the clock ticking down. So, friends, this is why hope you can see from this passage that it is of utmost importance that we gather. And I feel like I'm literally preaching to the choir because you're, we're here. But for our church, and I, I think I'm going to send this out, this sermon out in, in our email this week to make sure that the people who weren't able to be with us here today uh, hear this sermon. I think most of you that know me 
have known me long enough that that I'm not the let's have 12 things every week for church and you need to be at every single one of them. Okay, I'm not that guy. Nor am I a guy that says you can never miss gathered worship on Sunday mornings. Not that guy either. But some of us do sometimes take a very casual approach to whether we are going to gather or not. So much so that to our children in our own household, it is an open question of whether we are going to be there on Sundays. And if you've got children, that should never be a question in their mind. And there are activities that take us away from church, and those activities are, are, many of them are fine and good. But for some of us, we often see gathering together as this movable piece that can literally be sacrificed for anything. And I want to pull us back a little bit from that and say, brothers and sisters, that actually should not be so. What we're doing here, just because it happens 52 weeks a year, doesn't mean that if I catch 40 of them, I'm good. If you are not gathering regularly with God's people, number one, it is disobedient. And there are no other substitutes for this thing. You can't slice this thing up into a bunch of other things and say, well, I get that, but in all these other ways. It doesn't work like that. There's no substitute for this thing. So one, it's a matter of obedience. But secondly, it's kind of a matter of life and death. Not just for you, but for the people around you. And our casual approach to this, our willingness to miss for literally anything, tells me that perhaps we don't truly understand the work of Christ. And we're missing the boat on what he's doing. And so I exhort you a little bit directly, and again recognizing you're here, (laughs) but I exhort you directly to say, There's a lot riding on this that you need and that the people around you need. 